I have no issues setting the bar insanely high. And and you're right about was people set the bar too low. And I did that with with distance running and you know college running in the NCAA. I, I can't speak for other sports, but um, I know just across the Division One landscape, it's so harsh and it just beats you down doesn't matter if you were really talented coming out of high school or you were um what, what they call a, a 420 920 guy like me it's just there's hundreds and hundreds of kids who run 420 in the mile 920 in the two mile who have the potential to be really good but um there's not they're not like the the five-star recruits uh it doesn't matter who you are everyone gets gets injured everyone is disappointed for the you know probably 99 percent of people and that really did shake my belief. And so by the time I left college, even with I had improved tremendously and had a lot of good races, I was like, okay, this is where I am in distance running. And I'll keep fighting for that. But you know, I, I stopped believing that I could compete for you know being the best in the country, being the best in the world. I believe it to the point where I'll say that. Like I will I will never compete at a at a world championship level event in running. And that's I don't believe that's the case in triathlon. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and each week we shine a light on people looking, finding, and living their purpose. People who are making shifts in their lives towards what they love and away from what society deems as the path. In the case of today's guest, professional triathlete Ari Klau, the shift was radical. He quit his well-paid full-time job as a software engineer to pursue a calling to figure out how good he could be at endurance sports. Ari is no stranger to competition, having been an NCAA runner, but as a rookie pro triathlete, he still has much to experience as he trains and races himself up the ranks. Ari's story comes with trauma and loss as his life intensely shifted overnight in January of this year. It was an event that catapulted him into a whole new reality and profession. He shares his journey on his YouTube channel, and he doesn't do it bashfully. We know you guys appreciate the open and honest conversation, and we know this guy is going to bring it. Ari, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's a, a wonderful intro. Ah, well, we're psyched. We love the, uh, you know, this adventure that you're on. It's really exciting. And as we know, excitement has the same physiological response as fear. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a wild ride, this life. I think it's meant to be a wild ride. And, um, and I don't believe that we're supposed to hold back. So let's just jump in with like, all right, so now you're a pro triathlete. So like, what'd you do today? What was your training like today? What's, what's that life like? Uh, very mundane. Um, I guess side of it is I went, so I'm, I'm based in New Hampshire, uh, Southern New Hampshire, about an hour outside of Boston and about two and a half hours from where I grew up, uh, just outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And since I'm moving around so much and my car, uh, up until yesterday was not registered anywhere. Um, I, my parents were like, Hey, just register it at, in Connecticut. You'll, we'll get all the mail. And you know, until you find somewhere permanent, you'll just, you'll just keep it here. So I spent four hours at the DMV yesterday. And, um, then I had to, I, I only got a 10 day registration. They wouldn't give me my, my permanent registration for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, I had to go get emissions this morning and didn't make it back in time for open water swim with, with my teammates. So spent the morning at the pool and then drove back up to New Hampshire. And, uh, after this, I'll have a, uh, a bike and a run. So the trifecta, just all, all easy, uh, easy sessions, just getting in the volume. 
Nice. And you just came off your first pro race in Maine. So yes, how is that? Um, had you, how much racing, have you done any racing as an age grouper in triathlete? As in triathlete? Yeah. So I, uh, I've done, I think five, uh, age group races. So my first one was, and, and I guess I wasn't, I didn't start triathlon as soon as I quit my job. I was swimming like once or twice a week. Um, just cause I was still sort of struggling with running injuries and I had half an eye on triathlon, but I didn't really start uh, swimming every day until I went to Tucson to go train with Lionel Sanders. Um, and I did my first triathlon after about two weeks of being there. Uh, that was in March. And then my next one after that was, I believe June and there was one in July, um, the age group nationals double uh, in August. So yeah, that's five, five age group races and then earn my elite license at age group nationals and, uh, decided I would, I would rather get smacked around in the pro field than, um, be like be competing for the win in the age group field. So, and that is exactly what happened. I got smacked around. <laughs> yeah. So what's <laughs> that? We had, uh, Renee Kylie on the show and I don't know if you know Renee, but you'd probably really love her story. And she's just, She's just super, super cool girl, uh, professional triathlete, but was, you know, not a professional triathlete. She was like a heavy cigarette smoker, partier, um, high finance, like, you know, really strong businesswoman. But she talks about how, you know, age groupers all the time will kind of calculate like, oh, well, I'd probably be like top 10, you know, like they're calculating their times. Like if I went pro, I'd be the, and she was like, uh-uh. It is, you can, it, that does not translate because the effort in which, yeah, you have to, so what was it like for you as far as going from that age group, top end age group to the pro field? Like what's the jump? Uh, well, I didn't have anyone to swim with in the pro field for one. So even at age group nationals, I think, you know, in my, my wave in the age group, uh, I had, I had people to swim with. I was not, you know, I think I was probably right around the middle, uh, and very quickly, uh, and, and also, uh, the race at Maine was an ocean swim and the current was pretty gnarly that day. I had never had experience like swimming over under waves, I guess, like what the proper way to, to swim out mm-hmm. when the current is, is coming in. Um, so I mean, my first experience with that was just the shakeout swim the day before. And I was like, Whoa, okay. I I'm just going to have to do my best. Cause I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, these lake swims in New Hampshire have not prepared me for this. Um, but yeah, very quickly I found myself alone and, uh, I was trying to see where other people were, but there were always waves, you know, crashing in me whenever I was sighting. So eventually, um, I was just like, okay, I'm alone. Let's just time trial this swim as straight as I possibly can, which was hard because I couldn't see the buoys over the waves a lot of the time. And it was 5.45 in the morning, so the sun wasn't up either. So it was just, for my first pro race, it was just probably the worst possible situation for uh, a a new swimmer like myself. Um, But I I knew that could be the case. I wasn't wasn't scared of coming out of the water and last. and, uh, And I pretty much got to work on the bike, caught a few people, uh, and halfway through the bike, I, my coach was on the side of the road and said, you know, what the time gap was. And I had lost two more minutes outside of, uh, you know, since I started the bike and I was like, Whoa, I'm, I'm doing really good power. I thought I was going fast. I don't know what's going on up there, but I guess this is a whole different playing field. And then 
you know, I knew I was, I was out of it. I was not going to podium. I was not going to win. Um, and so I just ran as hard as I could, uh, which before the race, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to see how deep I could go. I wasn't thinking about place and I wasn't thinking about time and I wasn't thinking about bike power. Um, I was just thinking about, can I make this the most painful thing that I've ever done? Um, and I, I think I did. There's only one other race that I think can really, uh, compare as a 5k I ran in college, just in terms of like, that was the deepest I ever went. Um, but this was a whole different ball game because it was almost four hours long versus a, you know, 14 minutes and a 5k. So, um, I did what I wanted to do as far as going really, really deep and, uh, seeing what I had. And I ran a, a, a pretty good run split faster than I thought I was, what I was fit enough to do. But yeah, I just wasn't, I was never in the race and that was extremely, extremely frustrating to just be like time trialing myself off the back. So, uh, learning experience, maybe, um, I feel like I didn't learn that much except for how much better the pros are than I am at swimming, which I already knew. Um, but, uh, I, I, I don't regret going pro and, and having that be my first pro race. Um, because I think it doesn't get any worse than that. Um, unless I time trial and I feel really awful, you know, I guess I felt okay on the day. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a completely different ball game, you know, swimming with pros. And then, um, I'm so much worse of a swimmer and, and everyone's pretty much as good of a biker as I am. So I'm still losing time or maintaining whatever on the bike. And then you know, you're 10 minutes back by the time you get out of T2 and, you know, I'm not going to run a, a one Oh two to, to make that up. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it was tough, but good, good experience. How do you, how do you stay, how do you stay not getting too far ahead of yourself? Like, how do you stay in the moment? So you were frustrated, like you get the time split and that can work both ways. You know, if you get a great time split, maybe it motivates you to go a little bit faster. You get a, a bad uh, time split that's sort of shocking. You sort of get you, the potential to get frustrated and upset and then can dovetail into negativity. So can you recall being in that moment? Do you recall moments like that? Or are you just in flow? Just like, let's not, go? not in this race. Uh, I think what I have, uh, gotten very good at since, uh, the last couple races of college and since leaving college is really being honest with myself about what I have to give on that day. What my, what I have to give physically. Um, because there's a, you know, you can only go as far as your mind will let you. And often people convince themselves that the limit that they have in their mind is their physical limit. And so I fell into that trap a lot in college and that's simply not the case. Most of the time, even if you feel awful, I'm a firm believer that even if you feel physically awful, uh, just cause sometimes you go into a race and you feel flat, you don't feel great. Uh, that your physical potential is like 98 or 99% of what it is when you feel great. You just have to dig deeper to get there. Um, and so that's, that's one of my like frameworks that I operate off of is not buying the bullshit that my mind tells me to try to get me to slow down. Uh, so, you know, my, my, I was five minutes down out of the swim and then, 20 something miles into the bike. My, my coach says, Oh, seven minutes. And I was like, Oh, that's what it is. But like, what can I do? I can only keep going as hard as I can. 
Um, you know, without being stupid, I had sort of a power target to hit. Uh, and then again, the, it doesn't matter what the time gap is when my goal is, let's see how much I can hurt. Um, maybe if I was in contention for the win or the podium, that could give me that extra 15 seconds or so. But, uh, and, and even after the race, my coach was like, Oh, if you had been in the race, you know, you ran one Oh nine, but if you were in that race, maybe you could have run one Oh eight. Like maybe, but I, I really believe I gave it everything I had, you know, cause at, at every moment I'm like, all right, commit, pick up your turnover, run this pace. And then probably within 30 seconds, almost everybody starts to settle in a little bit much. It, and, uh, it's like, okay, am I settling in or am I, is this still everything I have? And so it was a constant, you know, an hour straight of keep your turnover here, keep your effort here, keep your, you know, just keep running hard, keep running as hard as you can. And constantly asking myself, am I running as hard as I can? No, pick it up. Or like, am I running as hard as I can? Yes. Keep it here. Uh, so, uh, it's almost like motivation doesn't factor into it because motivation is, is uh, a fickle way to get yourself to do things. Sometimes it'll be there in droves and sometimes it won't be there at all. So I try to take motivation and how I'm feeling out of the equation beforehand and say, I'm just going to execute. And I've made the decision to go as hard as I can before the race started, regardless of the outcome of the race or how the race is playing out. So, um, I didn't get negative until I finished, which was, uh, it was a very weird emotional experience. I had never, I, I had never like felt that way before at the end of a race. Yeah, it was pretty powerful. And he captured that on film. I think that was, when I watched that, I think I messaged you and I was like, wow, dude, like I'm going into my race. Like that's, that's raw. Like that's like so authentic. Well, so my, my friend, Johnny, my, you know, he's my college teammate, one of my best friends and he's a phenomenal filmmaker. Uh, he is always like too scared. Uh, he said, I didn't want to pull the camera out. You know, I didn't even want to approach you in that moment. He came up to me and I was just like, take the fucking camera out, <laughs> like get this on camera, get this on camera. Cause like, I, you know, I, I wanted to see what it would be like afterwards. And it was very hard to watch after the fact. And when we were making that YouTube video, it was just, I was so uncomfortable watching it because within an hour of that, if you had asked me how I felt about it, it would have been completely different, especially two, three days later. Yeah. You know, when you give everything you can for, <laughs> that many hours and you see the result that that brings or the time that that brings or or whatever it may be like your body's broken down your mind is broken down and we get to release the suppression right so you can look at that and just say i got to release the suppression because that's what it was like a big release like that because so quickly you were far away from that emotion like you felt different like an hour later or so. Yeah. I just, well, so I, I finished and I immediately started uh, like tearing up almost because of relief, you know, because I've had so many races, so many big races that I've psyched myself up for in college that I just don't give everything. And this was going to be the biggest test that I ever, I had ever had. Can I give everything for an hour and 10 minutes after a long swim and the, you know, the longest, hardest bike I've ever done. Um, and so part of me was like, oh, yes, I did it. I, 
I didn't shy away from, from this extremely painful thing. You know, I did what I wanted to do. I'm becoming the athlete I want to be mentally. Um, and then it was like, wait, but I got 19th place. Like I did all that for 19th place and I'm crying. I must be upset. And so all of a sudden I got really, really upset when like my initial emotion that I crossed the line was like, oh, I did, I did it. That was good. Um, and so it was just this weird mix of like my initial reaction then, uh, formed the way I, I, felt afterwards like i wasn't upset when i crossed the line but because i was relieved and started almost crying tears of relief it made me think i was upset and then i got really upset and i had i had like so little control over it and so i started making almost excuses for myself for why i should be upset and i guess part of me being so competitive is like i shouldn't be happy with myself after i just got 19th place mm-hmm. i was like 14 minutes 15 minutes behind the winner i there's no like there's no world where i should be satisfied with that even though I did everything I could. And then an hour later it was like, Mm. wait a second, what, like, what could I have done? Um, and so it was almost just maybe embarrassment at being happy with a performance where I was so far from the front and I want to, you know, I did, there were some comments on the YouTube video and there's always mean people on YouTube being like, did you really think you were going to go in there and compete for the win in your first pro race in your first 70.3? And I was like, yeah, and I'm going to go into the next one and I'm going to think I'm going to win until I know I can't. And then at that point, it's going to be just go as hard as you can again. And then one day I will win. And, you know, I don't, I'm fine being really upset for an hour after the race. If, you know, if I can continue to go in thinking I'm going to win each of these races. Yeah, absolutely go in wanting the win. Absolutely. I think that scares people. I think it scares people to have so much certainty. You're so certain that it will happen one day. And I think people get scared because they too, they don't understand that. They don't understand what, how can you comprehend that without the physical proof? You don't have the physical proof, but in your mind, you know. And so people who don't connect with themselves they don't know so it brings it brings fear and incites fear and, and uncertainty inside of them yeah and i yeah people again it's it's almost embarrassing to tell yourself that your goal is something almost insurmountable or something that would be extremely uh, impressive to do but the worst that can happen is that you don't do it uh, and I, that was my mindset for a long, is like, I'm not going to go into this race and say, Oh, I want to run 1340 in the 5k today, or I want to run 750 in the, in the three K because there's no way that's going to happen. Um, but why not just go in and believe it and do everything you can to get there. And the worst case scenario is you like, maybe you get close or you don't even get close at all, but why defeat yourself before the race starts? Yeah, exactly. It's a great question. Yeah. And, yeah. and have big dreams. I, I talked to two athletes this morning who have these, who came clean with me on two, these two different athletes have these two really big dreams that on paper would be like, no, you can't do that because of this, because of that, because of that. And uh, in, in one of the conversations, the athlete was saying like, you know, we were talking about how we just, we set the bar too low. We set the bar too low because we're so scared, right? Like our, our, it's going to be embarrassing or our pride's going to get hurt. But if we don't set the bar high, like, I feel like we're at risk of settling in this like mediocrity. Like, oh, I can be a top 10, a top Mm -hmm. 10 pro or I'm getting a little bit of money. I'll supplement through Patreon. Why not? 
Like you've done, you've taken so many risks. You've made all these huge changes. Why not? Well, a- absolutely. But I also, I don't want to make it seem like anyone who's listening to this is that it's a mental tactic for me to convince myself that I believe it. I <laughs> legitimately believe that I would go into this race and I would swim 29 minutes and I would be probably about five minutes down. And then I would hold, you know, 310 Watts and whatever for me on that's, you know, I, I would bike a, a 202, right. I'd, I'd be even with probably most people and, uh, probably make up time on the contenders. And then I would run a 110 and, and be in the race. Like I would be there. Um, and, uh, I totally forgot about, you know, the drafting is a thing in, in long distance triathlon. And that played a huge, huge part in this race. Um, and I'm, you know, by no means like blaming that on the fact that I didn't win. I obviously have, um, a lot of work to do, but I legitimately believed that what I thought I could do on paper would be good enough to win on some days. And I didn't quite end up doing what I thought would be the sort of optimal, uh, scenario, especially on the bike. But, um, you know, if I go into a race with, with Jan or, you know, with Lionel or Gustav or one of, you know, one of these absolute top, top guys, I am not going to think that because I know that on paper, they're pretty much better at, at almost everything, you know, on par with running. Um, some of them I'm, you know, maybe on par on the, with bike power, but I'm slowly learning that bike power is not, it's not everything. Um, but this was a race that I was like, this, the, the quality of this field is one that I can win. And, um, I think people got offended that I thought that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's tough for that's them. That's for them to work. For, you know, whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, but also, yeah, no, I, I, I have no issues, um, setting the bar insanely high. And, and you're right about was people set the bar too low. And I did that with, with distance running and, you know, college, running running in the ncaa i can't speak for other sports but um i know just across the division one landscape it's so harsh and it just beats you down doesn't matter if you were really talented coming out of high school or you were um what what they call a a 420 920 guy like me it's just there's hundreds and hundreds of kids who run 420 in the mile 920 in the two mile who have the potential to be really good but um there's not they're not like the the five-star recruits uh, it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone gets gets injured. Everyone is disappointed for the you know probably ninety nine percent of people, and that really did shake my belief. And so by the time I left college, even with I had improved tremendously and had a lot of good races, I was like, okay, this is where I am in distance running, and I'll keep fighting for that. But you know, I I stopped believing that I could compete for you know being the best in the country, being the best in the world, um, and and I. I believe it to the point where I'll say that, like, I will, I will never compete at a, at a world championship level event in running. And that's, I don't believe that's the case in triathlon, mm, you know, and I don't know if that's like a mental, that. okay, I was setting the bar low and now I came to triathlon. I'm like, well, if I'm doing this, I'm, I'm going to set the bar high. Cause that's the only reason I'm coming over. I didn't come over to be a mediocre triathlete from being a mediocre runner. Yeah, so, no, that's like weak coffee, and yeah. I know you wouldn't like weak coffee. No, no, we strong spros only. So yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, yeah I'm baby. gonna keep that bar high going into every race. Good, good. I love it. We'll keep it high for you too. Um, all right, let's backtrack and um, take us into your story and what what really was this 
this wake up, like literally like a wake up that you had back in January, um, which really shifted your life? Well, I guess previously we can go back to October, which I was living in Seattle with my friend Spencer and Will. And Spencer is a professional runner for Brooks Beasts. He was just starting his professional career. And I was trying to sort of walk on to the team, I guess. And I was doing practices with them. And um, I was going to try to run my way into some sort of pro running contract. And uh, I got injured, which like I don't really get injured very much. Um, and this was a particularly bad injury. And it was just taking too much time to get better. And uh, it had started raining in Seattle just about every day, as it does you know, in, in late October. So I bought a bike trainer so I could just bike on our porch every day and, and try to maintain some fitness for distance running. And then in the process, I completely fall in love with the sport of cycling and trying to get fitter and better on the bike. And so obviously there's two of the disciplines right there, especially as my, my running health came back. And we went to Albuquerque because Spencer had the, the Brooks Beasts had their altitude camp in Albuquerque. And so uh, within, I want to say it was the third or fourth day that we were there. Um, I just, you know, I woke up at seven, 8 AM to, to just get up for the day. And I had a, a bunch of missed calls from my parents and a voicemail that was just like, please, please call us. And I, I could tell something was wrong. Um, and I did not, did not expect the call, but yeah, my mom said, you know, Hey, your, your sister overdosed, she died. Um, and I, I remember it so, so vividly. Uh, and I just, I started like wailing and my, you know, my, my roommates were asleep and, uh, or I guess they weren't asleep anymore. Um, and I, uh, I was just like, okay, that happened. And I need to go like get after the rest of my day. It was a Saturday. Um, so I didn't have work and all I, all I was going to do that day was run. And so I did my best to just carry on with my day as normal. There was really nothing to figure out as far as flights or, you know, going home. Cause, uh, this was also in the height of COVID. So it was like actually getting her body from LA to Connecticut for a funeral was, um, complicated. So yeah, that was just, it was just like this happened. And now, now start figuring out what the rest of your life looks like. So I, uh, made myself a spro, made myself a pancake, just, you know, forced it, forced it down. It was like, I don't, I don't remember if I ate the whole thing, but I remember trying to just like, Hey man, you're not I like, obviously I don't know what grieving is like, but I figured you're not going to want to eat. So you have to force yourself to eat. Um, and then as my roommates got up, I told them one by one and I, um, I made sure to be like, look, man, I'm fine. Just go about your day as normal. Like pretend nothing happened. Um, cause I didn't, I didn't want anyone to, to change what they were doing to support me or whatever. I was like, I like, I'm not okay, but I'm okay. You know, I'm just going to, it starts now figuring out what, what I'm going to do for the rest of the day. So I ran, it was really weird. I like couldn't breathe. And I was on the phone with, um, my best friend, Jesse, uh, who like he called and he, he was like, and it, the word was sort of just getting out to the community. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, I guess at some point that day I called my manager and it, you know, it was a Saturday, but I obviously wasn't going to go back to work on Monday. So I, I called him and I said, Hey, I, my sister passed away. Just letting you know, I'm going to need a while. Um, and yeah, so the next two weeks I did nothing except like just bike and run. Um, I think I swam, I swam a couple times and it, and it was great. Like it's, it, in the midst of something extremely tragic, I was able to do, to just do what I love to do, which is make myself hurt, you know, suffer from, uh, endurance exercise. And, uh, I guess what really triggered it was when I, I had to get on these calls to transfer over my project. Um, my manager said, I want to help you get get back on your feet if that's what you want um and he, he typed that it was a slack message and i was just i kept reading it if that's what you want if that's what you want and i was like yep no like now i know like reading that i was like i do not want to come back to work and so i called him and and um one of the other software engineers and i was just like yeah i uh, <laughs> I, I think i'm done um and so i just i never i never went back to work after that uh, and the, I guess the YouTube channel had about 7,000, six or 7,000 subscribers by then. So it was, it was at the point where I was doing the math and I was like, okay, I have X amount in savings and, uh, these are my expenses. And if I post two videos a week, I'll, you know, that get this amount of views, I'll be making this money a month and I'll be able to make it until let's say June on, you know, slowly draining my savings while, trying to support it with, um, with YouTube ad revenue. And then I, I also started the, the Patreon. Um, so from that point on, I guess I was building up for this 5k in Austin, you know, I was still had my focus on distance running. Um, but I was just, I was just trying to carve my own path, uh, and be a, be a, an athlete supporting themselves on YouTube and sharing their journey. And, um, yeah, I had, I had no, no real thoughts about triathlon, uh, at the time. Um, but I was, but I guess by all means a, a professional athlete, but, but not really professional cause I had no sponsors, which is where the term strug pro comes from. Uh, and at some point in Albuquerque, uh, Talbot Cox and Lionel Sanders found my YouTube channel and they love, you know, they were like, Oh, this guy makes his own beats and he's just, he's they, I don't know, running, biking, they liked what I was about. And, uh, they invited me to train in Tucson. Uh, and I kind of asked if I'd be able to swim with Lionel, like, can I come out and start swimming? Uh, and they were like, yeah, for sure. And so, uh, I did this 5k in Austin and then went to Tucson and started swimming every day with Lionel and, um, was pretty bad at it, but fell in love with it pretty quick. Cause it's just another, you know, repetitive motion that gets really hard after you do it for a while. And just like running and cycling. And, um, that was, that was really the beginning. Uh, and so, you know, now I'm a, I'm a triathlete and, um, yeah, still have no job. <laughs> yeah. Or no, well, no, no software, no, uh, no consistent income, I guess, but or no one's paying, paying me, uh, Sorry, that that got me really. Uh, I hadn't like gone into detail about 
that in a while. So I'm, I'm in a weird, weird headspace just recounting that right now. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's okay. It's, you know, it's like at this point you kind of look back and shake your head. Like was like, did that happen? Like that was that happen? Like this, so much has changed for you. And, uh, your your home your address has changed your home has changed you do you still have Annie the dog yeah so that's that's one of the other things is uh the apartment I'm in is is that there's no dogs and um my coach is helping me out because obviously I can't I uh I was going to come and, and try to find my own apartment but finding like a dog friendly one was just way too expensive um outside my me my uh, means and um, so he's helping me out. I'm in the, I'm in the, you know, the team housing with the rest of the guys. And, um, so my parents or I asked my parents, uh, cause I wasn't set on going to live with the rest of the team initially, uh, cause I wanted to live with Annie and, uh, I was like, would you guys look after him, you know, just for the summer? Um, and they're like, yeah, yeah. Just for the summer. Um, cause I, I didn't want to, I, I love Annie and I, I didn't want to like put this on them. And eventually I was like, okay, I'll go somewhere else after the summer and that'll be that. Um, but now they, I don't, I don't think they want me to take him cause they just, they love, him. <laughs> they love him so much. Um, and he's, and, uh, he is so much better in like a, a house with a yard and he can run around and there's always people around versus we were always in tiny apartments across the U S and, I was gone like most of the day, just working out. Um, so it's honestly such a better situation for him with my parents now and, and they love him and he just loves being where he is. So that, that worked out really, really well. And Annie was your sister's dog. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, I mean, one of my first thoughts after, you know, the, in the, in the days after she died was what is going on with, with Annie. Um, cause I figured he was just in the house. And, and so the other thing is my, my sister had, was living with her boyfriend, um, who was the one who, you know, who found her in the bathroom and I'm assuming called 911 and the, you know, it's just this, in, like, it's obviously it's traumatic for me, but I wasn't there. Um, you know, he was the one who was, he was in the room and they'd been living together all of COVID. And, um, so he just, he left, he was like, I can't be in this house. Um, you know, I totally understand. So he went in, he was staying with his parents and just going in and, and checking on Annie. Um, but for days I was like, what's, uh, what's that dog doing? He's all alone. Like I need to go, I need to get him. Um, so my parents had no plans. Um, they were just going to try to make sure he went to a good home. And I was like, no, that, that can't happen. I need to go get him. So I mentioned my friend Jesse before, and I, I called in the, the homie move of the century as I will call it. Um, and we drove to LA nonstop, just went and, uh, picked up Annie and, and, uh, my sister also had a cat, um, nowhere near as cool as Annie, but it was a cute cat. So we picked him up and, uh, yeah. And then I was just sort of adventuring with Annie up until, up until coming back East. And so now he's with my parents and, um, it's almost, it's almost like we have the whole family together in a way. Yeah, I, I love that your parents like kind of don't want to give the dog back yeah, at this point. Yeah, And yeah. Annie's in some of your videos, and actually I highly recommend that people watch that video uh, when Jesse comes, and you guys drive like 36 hours and 54 hours, and he's just an amazing friend, like just 
somebody who's just there for you, le- literally left on a moment's notice, drove to get you. Um, and I think he ended up taking her cat, right? <laughs> yeah. So it, it does turn out that that story doesn't end as that's, the, the cat is crazy, which is kind of uh, <laughs> makes sense because my sister had all sorts of pets. Like she just, I don't know. She had a snake at one point. She's had, she just had like all sorts of pets. Most of them are crazy. She had another dog at one point that was literally just crazy. It was like a, like a crackhead chihuahua, that sort of thing. And so it's, Andy is a, is a complete anomaly as far as him being a chill dog and he's loving and, you know, he Mm -hmm. behaves well. Um, so it turns out the cat was just, she was like jumping on Jesse's face, like at night and like claws out and, um, no, uh, like eating regulation. Um, so he was like, dude, I can't do this. And I was like, dude, we have no, we have like no sentimental attachment to that cat. She got it like, you know, a couple months earlier just because she wanted another pet. So, um, so I think he uh, gave her to a shelter or uh, a friend. I'm not sure exactly, but um, that wasn't that. It was not like the uh, a part of the family like Annie had been for you know the past four yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are plenty of cat lovers out there. I'm yeah. sure the cat has a beautiful home. That's what yeah. that's what I envisioned for the cat. Um, yeah, that's a lot, dude. You've gone through a lot in the last nine months. Like it's it's. It probably feels like just yesterday, and it probably feels like a million years ago. Yep. Um, yeah, right? Um, so as far as walking away from the job, right, like that doesn't make sense, right? You're getting a good paycheck. You probably get some like 401k situation. Have you had any backlash from people like um, that it wasn't a smart move for you to do or... I mean, there's always the odd YouTube comment or like this one guy, I uh, was just like, oh, dude, quitting your job isn't, uh, oh, by the way, I read every YouTube comment, you know, for better or for worse. I just, I read everyone. It's not, you know, most of, a lot of the times I want to respond to the mean ones, but this one guy was like, uh, quitting your job isn't, isn't heroic or, or bold. It's like a classic, stupid millennial move, blah, 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 blah. But that's the only like comment I can remember. But as far as like people close to me, um, they were all like, Oh, you're doing, you know, you got a good head on your shoulders. You're doing, you'll, you'll figure it out. And it's like, I still have a college degree. So I think everybody was like, you're not, I'm not going to end up like, I can go back and get a job if I need to. Uh, so I don't know. It made perfect sense to me because, and, and you guys know, it's just money is not enough. It's like the money was nice twice a month when I looked at my bank account and it was payday. And then within minutes it was like, oh, I gotta get back to work which it just never seemed like it was worth the money. Um, and I, I don't think it, it could have ever been worth the money, especially as I fell in love with cycling, which is such a time-consuming sport, um, which is a good thing because I love spending a lot of time working out, which you just can't do with running. So I, I grew to resent the job as I was envisioning myself cycling for eight hours instead of working. So it made made perfect sense to me and I was always dreaming of the day that I could wake up and just be a pro athlete so um I think uh you know a lot of people have been like man that takes some serious balls to do that I'm like not really like I didn't I there was one path ahead of me and I am I am walking it you know it wasn't like there was a crossroads it was just I'm just I just kept moving forwards you know and that was the way forwards 
I think a lot of people don't know that there is another way. And uh, you know, I'm speaking for myself in the in a similar position, like in a corporate job, like could have done it for the rest of my life. Um, and I didn't know that I could I could actually choose to do what I loved as what I what I loved full time. And I think the safety um, factor always comes up to the surface of financial um, stability, right? So, and and I see this in in people that we talk to about making that move. And it's always like, well, once I have enough money or once I get, you know, you know, my, my investment in the company at 100%, you know, I walked away on the second part uh, of my, of my job. I think it was 60 or 80% of being fully vested in the company. And I've told, shared this with people and they're like, wow, oh my God. I think there was one person who lost sleep over it because they couldn't understand (laughs) walking away from that. But, but what resonated with me was it, it was much more than just the, like you said, the money in, in your account. Um, and I love your worst case scenario, like the worst, what's the worst case? And this is what we did when we were, you know, driving across the country, when we left everything, worst case scenario, you move home with the parents and you find a way to make money, Starbucks, you program, whatever you need to do, you'll find a way. And if that's the worst case, wow, like, that's pretty awesome. It, yeah, it makes it a bit of a no-brainer. And I, I had wanted to – I knew there was going to come a point where I was just going to be an athlete and I wasn't going to be a software engineer. And I thought, it, I thought it would be a lot later than it was. I thought I would probably work for several years. Um, and But it, what, what really uh, changed it for me was uh, I was talking to Johnny before. You know, This was in – I think it was in probably November – um, and I was on the bike trainer. I had a two hour ride and he had just happened to call me. He was in, I think he was in DC at the time. Uh, and, uh, I think it was, uh, the, the four hour work week or Tim Ferriss. Um, he was, he had oh, been yeah. reading. Yeah. yeah. And he's, he's like, well, let's, let's look at the worst case scenario and the best case scenario and best case scenario is, I mean, honestly, what it is now is like, I'm, I am stable. I have a stable, uh, income i'm surviving as a professional athlete and all i do is work out and it's my dream and again worst case scenario is is exactly what you said i i move home with my parents and get back on my feet it's you know and at least then i will have tried uh so that that sort of shifted the what the 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 risks were not as great Mm -hmm. as they seem when you when you really think about it yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and even when Beach was like just miserable at his job, he wasn't doing what he loved, um, you know, and he was training around it and he was coaching some people for free. And I looked at the worst case scenario and I was thinking to myself, well, the worst case scenario is we lose the house, right? Like we, we lose our house. Um, you know, I get a couple part-time jobs. Maybe we can move in. My sister has an extra bedroom. Like you start entertaining these things. I think it's really important to entertain the worst case scenario because if you don't entertain it, then it remains in the unknown and the mind will catastrophize it, right? Like, I mean, to look, it's almost like what you fear, right? What you fear, the worst case scenario. But if you look at what you fear, it's actually not as scary as you think it is before you're mm-hmm. before you take a look at it, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think when you start to talk it out and you actually explore, be curious about what your actual options are, not what you believe them to be, then I think you get some sort of I'm going to use the word comfort around 
this risk that you're taking, a, a level of um, a higher level of comfort in this risk that you're taking. Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the main differences is also I, you know, I'm 24. It's like my and my dad, who is the the number one guy to say do not quit your job and keep putting six thousand dollars in your Roth IRA every year and blah 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 blah. Um, I told him I was like, look, I'm. I, I actually didn't tell my parents when I quit my job uh, because I knew they would freak out. So I told them like a month later or whatever, and they were just like, okay, <laughs> I guess there's nothing we can do. Um, and uh, my dad is always like, look, I, what one, like he, he loves, he loves watching me on YouTube and he loves that I'm following my dream. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is the time in your life to do something like this, to do something potentially stupid. Um, and you know, we'll be there to catch you if, if, uh, mm-hmm. if it doesn't work out. Um, so I mean, it's, yeah, being, being young makes it, I, I have a lot of time and, and now I, I'm very confident that it is going to work out, um, you know, going to work out the way that I hoped it would. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I, it's just the time in my life to be moving around and be taking risks. And I just have my entire life ahead of me to, uh, make it work out. Hmm. Uh, and your sister's name was Miriam, right? Yep. Miriam. Miriam. So in, since she's been off this earth now for about nine months, um, what is she, have you pulled, uh, lessons or gifts from her exit, like her abrupt exit that has shaped the way you look at life or the way you live your life? I'm not sure. I would say no. Um, I'm, I am, I guess it's weird to say grateful for the way that things have happened because, um, well, I think there's no, there's no other way to be right. It's like what happened happened. Um, and I can either be miserable and angry about it, uh, which, you know, some people do. And that's just, that's not the way I, I choose to live. Um, so, you know, I am grateful for the way that things have worked out. And uh, I, I don't think my mindset has really shifted all that much. I think it's more so the, the actions that I've taken and the, and the path that I have, that I have taken is, is the gift that she, that she left me. Um, you know, I want to say that my, my mindset didn't really change at all uh, in this. I, I developed what I would say is a very close relationship with pain. You know, there was this, I was in this relationship that I really thought was going to be the last one ever. And it worked out or it didn't work out, um, in, in a way that it it really doesn't get worse than that. Or at least I I was like, I don't see how this could get any worse. And I, I started asking myself, like, why am I so afraid of, of like hurting? Why do I want to just leave this in the past and, and get away from it and uh, keep waiting, like curling up into a ball and waiting until I'm happy again. You know, what, what do I have to learn from just pain and grief? And I, I found it was the greatest teacher that I've ever had. And so I came away from it, you know, I, once I was sort of really starting to get over it and the pain of this breakup was subsiding. Um, I, uh, I almost missed it. Not that I missed it, but I was like, okay, I'm, I'm confident that I have a good, I have a, a solid framework for dealing with really awful things. And so one of my first thoughts, like I'm, I'm not kidding. One of my first thoughts after I got off the phone with my parents that morning was, 
all right, here we go again. What are we going to learn this time? And um, I think in some ways, uh, I, I mean, I, I learned more about what it, just what it feels like to live with grief and, and live with pain. And it's not this terrifying, scary thing that I think people make it out to be. Um, and again, there's that, this like curl up into a ball and wait for it to go away. Or you can just live like you can keep living your life. Like I said, I was in immense emotional pain and I still made the pancake and I still had a spro and I still got in all of the work that I wanted to, uh, to do like over the next two weeks. And there's nothing got caught off guard. You know, I know, I think my parents were like basically just on, on the couch for two weeks. And I, I think that's how most people are and, you know, nothing against people who grieve that way, but the way I chose to grieve was to uh, almost not change anything and just be inside my own mind and let myself think the thoughts that I was, that were already running through my mind and not, and not trying to change the way that I was, that like my mind was having me grieve. So, and yeah, in many ways, almost nothing, nothing changed. Like I didn't miss a step. Um, I didn't miss a workout and, um, I guess, yeah, just living. It, it was another, it was another I don't know. I, I don't want to say another, another punch, right. Like that you have to roll with. So, um, yeah, it sort of just confirmed and in, in the same way that when I finished the, the 70.3 in Maine, I was like, okay, I did it. You know, it's like, I, I can almost trust myself, uh, with doing the things that I want to do, you know, continuing to achieve my goals, regardless of the circumstances that are upon me. Um, and not, depending on it is important to be to be happy as an athlete but i think what one of the main things that it taught me is that you can be in pain and still be happy you know something painful doesn't make have to make you unhappy or depressed right pain and and joy will always be there in waves throughout your entire life and you can still find happiness regardless of of you know where you are on that wave mm. Yeah, so, pain, yeah, I, yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, I think, I think the pain is, um, is the stimulus, right? And then we have a choice to associate what we want with that pain. And if you can choose your reaction and choose joy or happiness or peace or calm, then then you're actually you have a lot of power in that um, in that decision-making process. Yeah. Well, I think I started to realize that all these forms of pain, you know, the pain, it, I, I guess it's, you know, losing a family member or a relationship not working out is this deep, deep discomfort that is constantly, you can't stop thinking about it in the same way that when you are 10 miles into a half marathon at the end of a 70.3, there's this deep, deep pain that you can't stop thinking about. And the the you know quickest most painless way is to accept it and keep moving forward, and so I think it's yeah I, I realized at, at some point that all these forms of pain were uh, very similar, and that me learning how to grieve with the loss of my sister would help me grieve with the fact that my legs are also in immense pain at the end of a race, um, which is like my ultimate goal in life is to 
be able to hurt more than anybody else. And so I stopped shying away from painful things that weren't athletic and instead used them as learning experiences to help me with things that are athletic. Um, I mean, if, if there is one paradigm shift that I have, that I had gotten from it, it's that I stopped associating hard with bad and easy with good. Right. It's like, and that, that's the same thing with pain doesn't need to make you unhappy. It's something hard does not have to be bad. Right. If you have a, and that's the same thing with what I was saying earlier about uh, being honest with myself about my physical limits and, you know, about what that sort of mental limit is. When someone, someone often says, oh, I had a bad race or I had a bad day. Like, no, you didn't. You had a hard day. Um, but whether it turned out to be good or bad is ultimately up to you. So that's, I think the, if we're talking about gifts, um, and what, you know, in a, in a, a life where my ultimate goal is mastery over my own mind in the context of, uh, endurance sports, um, that, that paradigm shift of enjoying being in pain, like really, really learning how to be happy while I'm in pain is the greatest gift that she left me. Yeah, I think that's a huge gift that you just shared with our audience. And, you know, I really love shining a light on pain and the labeling, the meaning that we give it, right? Um, and I love that, that easy is only good because we've labeled it that way, right? And pain is only bad because we've labeled it that way, that we can change our association mm. to it. And when we change our association to it, it's easier to be in it. I find it's easier to be with it because something like that, like you, the, you described it so beautifully, like the loss of the relationship and the loss of your sister is like this deep, deep discomfort. And there, you, it's not going anywhere on your command. Like you yeah. got to just learn how to live with that while still living. And I think if you label it as something that's going to just draw that energy down and leave you, you know, in a heap on the floor, it's going to be a lot harder to get up. But you're taking away the lessons from the highs and the lows of life, right? Life is a journey of highs and lows. It's ups and downs. It's black and white. It's night and day. And, you know, night is, darkness is scary and light is not. And, and the way that we mastery over your mind is going to it has so much to do with watching the meaning that you're giving things in this life. Right. And it's, and I mean, things that yeah. aren't serving you. I don't, yeah, I don't know what, what, uh, philosophically you, you might learn from, from yoga. And a lot of it I draw from, um, just from, I, I took like a, a Southeast Asian Buddhism class in, uh, in college. And so I, I, uh, am familiar with a lot of the, the theory and philosophy and, um, yeah, it's just when when you say yeah, there there are highs and lows, like and that's the um, life necessarily contains suffering, and so yeah, you, you will go through highs and you will go through lows, and you can you can learn how to be happy and blissful through those. Yeah, it's the contrast. You need you have to have you can't know what joy is like unless you experience suffering. Exactly, two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, and it's very similar, um, you know, Buddhist philosophy, yoga philosophy. It all, if, if we look at it, you know, all cha- it all kind of channels into the same, from, it's coming from the same funnel, right? Like everybody's, we're all speaking the same language, uh, just articulating it a different way, but very similar, right? It's a, in yoga, there's a, um, one of the principles is like contentment. And to me, contentment isn't like, oh, it's all good, it's all good, because it's not all good. Yeah. It's not all good. <laughs> it's not all good, but I believe that everything resolves to good. If you're awake, right, through this life, the things that you're pulling away from your losses, from your heartbreaks, things like that, you're channeling that towards good in your life. Yeah, and I, I, that's, I guess, one of the other things that I often forget um, what that I thought this so strongly when a lot of things sort of were in doubt. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't feel stable as I was like, whatever happens, it is going to be good. Like I firmly believe that the way this works out is going to be a place where I am the happiest. And so I'm just going to continue moving forward. Yeah. Beautiful. And, you know, I think it was Buddha that, you know, it's like, because you believe that, because you think that, you have thoughts that that fuel that belief. That's what it's going to be, right? But Buddha said, what? We become what we think, yeah. right? We got to watch those thoughts. We got to watch the meaning that we're giving life because that's what's dictating our reality. Right. And so to bring it all back full circle, one day I will show up on the line ready to start the swim and I will believe that I am going to win and I will win. It's like, perfect, dude. You just knitted this whole podcast together for us. That's amazing. So what is, uh, what's next for you? Can you share with us what's next? So my next triathlon, or at least my next 70.3 will be, uh, Indian Wells in December. So I'm just taking, you guys going to be there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be there, uh, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, I'm just taking the next several months to continue working, you know, even harder than before on my swim. You know, now I'm at a point where I'm able to handle a bit more volume and a bit more intensity. And, um, so now instead of getting acclimated to swimming, I can start training, um, and hopefully just start closing that gap bit by bit. And, uh, I think I'm going to try to find a a running race. I had a, a, a large Turkey trot, um, near my hometown. Um, it's very competitive that I'll probably do on Thanksgiving. And then at some point I want to do, I would love to do a cycling race, but if not, you know, do some sort of time trial or something, something competitive just myself, but, um, next triathlon, December 5th, Indian Wells. So that's, that's All right. We'll see you at. there. Yeah. What, um, see you guys there. I want to, yeah. uh, what, what did you pull? Because you were with Lionel for a little bit, and I know people you're always curious about him. What did you? What have you pulled away from uh, the short time that you were with him? And maybe specifically swimming wise, because it seems like a similar path. You know, he's got his opportunities there. Uh, so it seemed it's like right when I got there was when he really started turning the corner with his swim. Uh, so, I mean, he just he showed up. To, to swim every day just you know and he always just seemed to be in a good mood and I, I don't know what he was like before you know, you know I, I guess he he had only started working with Justin at Aquabear uh in November so it was you know it was a couple months before so I don't know what he approached swimming like before um but he uh 
just seemingly had a great time, which I think is one of the secrets to anything is, you know, to get good at it, just to have a good time. And, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like that's, that's the only thing. And I, I, I didn't know him before, but from his videos, it seemed like he had a, a more, um, a resentful relationship with swimming. And he always talks about, he was violent with the water and he starts fighting the water. And now, you know, it's, it just seemed like his relationship with, with swimming was changing. And I, um, I think the main thing that I took from Lionel is he really does just know how to hurt more than anybody else, you know? And that's kind of like, that's my goal is figure out how much I can hurt. Mm. And for a very long time, you know, I, I can tell when I talk to someone, whether, I can dig deeper than they can, you know, and especially when I work out with them, it's like, you know, you're kind of throwing punches at each other. Um, but yeah, he, he is just the, the, you know, the, the stars in, in that respect. Like that's what I would shoot for in terms of, of pain tolerance. It's like, you can just tell like he's hurting early and he's hurting for a long time and he just somehow finds a way to, to get through it. Um, and then that's, what everybody says and uh it's the truth um and i think especially once he you know seems to have such a good relationship with swimming you know when you when you can bring that mindset to the swim um mm. when you have a better attitude i think that's just you know he obviously had so much fitness with swimming and now that he's learning to approach it more like a swimmer uh with justin's help you know it's no surprise that he's swimming a 49 in an ironman now and he's you know coming out of the water you know, right near the front these days. Ah, oh, that's so, so cool. Amazing. I love to see it. Um, and I look forward to continuing to watch your journey and I'll be cheering you on on December 5th. Can't wait to see awesome. you there. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Ari. Really appreciate how you shared with us today. And I know the audience is going to just chew on it and yeah and i don't know if i should like apologize for it seemed so <laughs> no, like no. a dark a dark no. and painful episode never <laughs> apologize yeah. But, uh, yeah, how can they um how can they support you how, how, what's yeah. the best way to support you be um you know your youtube page yeah right now right now it's patreon or um uh, i have a link on on buy me a coffee so i, I well I, I say buy me a spro on there so it's just if they have you know five dollars they would throw um, but I'm, I'm, I said this months ago and I'm really, I'm working on it. Um, I'm trying to come out with the, with a pancake mix. Uh, so eventually, hopefully I'll have that to sell on these platforms. But right now, yeah, it's just, it's just Patreon and buy me a coffee and, uh, just watching YouTube, watch more YouTube. That's, yeah. And that's watch the commercials. Me. Don't skip the ads. Oh, yeah. skip the Don't ads. skip the ads. Care. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do now. I'm like, oh, I'm like, okay, I'll watch all the ads. I'll watch all the ads. Um, that's no, awesome. Thank yeah, you so much. So that, you guys but... go over and <laughs> Ari says, don't do it. I say, do it. Watch the ads. Um, yeah, check out his YouTube page. Subscribe, support him, and uh, come and cheer him on on December fifth. Thank you so Thank much you for so having much. me on, guys.